Hey guys, this is a shorter episode that is intended as a place for some really interesting tidbits of information that I simply could not, for reasons of time, include on the religion episode. But this episode is all on religious disbelief, specifically atheism. This is an inexact science. My name is Lisa Cantrell. Here we go. So, belief in the supernatural may actually be natural. In the episode on religion, we explored research that suggests that our tendency to believe in unseen, non-physical beings in gods, ghosts, angels, demons, and our tendency to believe that these unseen beings are responsible for events that occur in our lives, flood, famine, fortune, they may derive from our basic psychological traits as humans. Those main traits being our tendency to seek out agency in the environment, coupled with our obsession with others' minds, situated squarely within our need to explain and find purpose in the world around us. For the full story on all this, you should definitely go back and listen to that episode, but suffice it to say that it seems that religious belief is in fact our default, the path of least resistance. So if that's true, then how is it that there are those among us that do not believe? Atheist. There are two things to think about here. One is disbelief or atheism on the level of a single individual person. There are multiple reasons why this might occur, reasons that may be explained by cognitive science. Then there is the disbelief of an entire culture or nation. So although it is true that the majority of cultures have religion, there are exceptions. Scandinavia is notoriously non-religious. How is it that entire cultures, entire nations, have been able to somehow shift the norm to make their inhabitants move away from the default of religion. Well, let's start from the ground up. At the individual level, why would someone not believe? Clearly, your culture will influence you, so if you've been born into one of those non-religious cultures, you're probably less likely to believe. But let's say you're born into a religious society. Why would you break set from the default? <laughs> this is Francisco Parada. Don't make me sound like an asshole. He's a friend of mine. Yeah. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at the Department of Psychiatry in Harvard Medical School. We met in graduate school in Bloomington, Indiana. And when the term atheist comes up in conversation, Francisco is the person who comes to my mind. I personally believe there's no God. I believe there's nothing like that. I personally believe if you die, you die, and that's it. Unlike some of my other friends who are agnostic or claim to be unsure about the supernatural, he has, as long as I've known him, been pretty adamantly an atheist. Like he just plain and simple says, there is no God. We do not have souls. When we die, that's it. There's nothing else, period. But he hasn't always been like this. Something to know about Francisco is that he grew up in Chile, a historically Christian country. The story of South America and Christian tradition is an interesting one because it was forced, fed. Chile is officially Catholic. 
and we can argue about how fervently people in the country believe, but the fact is, the church has had a very real influence on life there. And generally, there is a sense that God, yeah, he's real. If you ask any Chilean, the most probable thing is that they're going to tell you they are Christian. They are a believer, you know. Why not? There's no, there's no punishment in believing. Actually, there are just benefits from that point of view because you just go to heaven and live like a happy life with like whatever thing they promise you. But if you don't believe, you don't have it. Therefore, it's easier to just say, yeah, sure, I believe. And I feel that, that that's where my family stands. So Francisco's family members weren't exactly the most fervent of Christians, but they certainly never discouraged him from believing. And what's more, they sent him to Catholic school. I was scholarized in a Christian school. So I, I was there 12 years, so I spent 12 years in a Christian school. So I know this, the scriptures pretty well. And he kind of believed in God and Christianity when he was a kid. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I would say that the first eight or nine years of my life, I pretty much considered it, that's, that's it, you know? But Francisco has a trait that may have sent him on a path to disbelief. He questions everything. And there were things that, even to a young child, simply did not make sense. I mean, it was, it, it was just kind of like, little by little, just uh, growing into the realization that this... Uh, I was always a, a very, like, wondrous kid. I, I questioned everything. I had terrible problems with authority. When I was a kid, I was like, who's God? Like, why isn't he ruling the planet? Why isn't he the president? And all these questions. And, and, and all these... Uh, things started happening. So here's where it kind of gets interesting, because in the podcast on religion, we talked about one of the key ingredients for belief being that need to make sense of a random world. Trying to understand why some big catastrophe happened may be easier if you can tell yourself that there's a bigger plan. But that's not what happened to Francisco. And then my best friend's mom, uh, she died. She died of a heart attack. We were uh, seven or eight, probably. Yeah. And, and I saw my friend devastated. And as a kid, I was like, holy crap, you know, uh, moms die. And, and that was like shocking that uh, something like that can happen. Yeah, so he saw this horrible thing happen and he could not make sense of it. And belief in God just made it seem even more cruel, less logical, less explained. It made even less sense. It's like really, really like God has a super plan, which is like leaving this seven-year-old kid by himself. And like, that's a part of the plan. Well, that's a horrible plan. And then it got worse. Then later, I had, when I was 11, I had, and this is like the last drop that, that kind of like, no, it's, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. That's the, the expression you guys use. So I was 11. And, and I had my appendix burst. And, and then it was like a horrible year for me when I was 11. I was like pretty much uh, couldn't walk after, couldn't like really breathe really well. My, my uh, pulmonary capacity was reduced a lot. It happens after like these big emergency surgeries. And in the, in the late 90s, you know, so ER, Santiago, Chile, midnight, mid, uh, yeah, midnight is pretty much. So it, it wasn't like now, like, like now, like technology wasn't like that. So it was a horrible outcome out of that. And then more questions came. And it was like, okay, 
What have I done? This makes no sense. Makes no sense. And at 11, I was already, I, I, there I became officially an agnostic. And I'm telling you these two stories. There were many others in between where there were more questions. It was like, oh, what, why did that happen? Mainly surrounded by death, disease. So people that would die, you know, people that would get sick. Uh, and, and then you just, I just started gradually going into more and more questions, questions that couldn't be answered by the priest at school, uh, couldn't be answered by the, the scriptures. The scriptures had nothing, nothing which I can relate to. So I became an agnostic when I was 11, officially. Uh, I decided that I wasn't going to be going anymore to church. Uh, I was, of course, 11, so I was obliged to go. <laughs> so I had to go. So when I decided, it was a decision in my mind, because in my school they said, well, but this is a Catholic school, therefore you have to go. So I had to go. But I never again did the sign of the cross, never again repeated any words that you have to repeat, uh, tried to not stand up when people said, like, stand up in, in mass, you know, when you're in mass, they say, stand up. I was like, nah, I won't stand up. Uh, of course, like, a, a, a professor, like a teacher would come and say, like, stand up, come on. And then you had to stand up. You have very little power. And that shows you how much indoctrination goes into the kids. You know, and by the age of 16, I was just fully blown atheist because it just things didn't make sense. I wouldn't find anybody with like right answers or good arguments. Can God control reality and doesn't do it? or he just can't control it. The, the concept of God implies something. And if and you're saying, well, what if we are getting the concept of God wrong? And then my, my counter question is like, then why is there a need of a God? It's more of a problem then. Because then how can we explain God? How can, how can God, who created the Creator? Who created God? What are the processes that underlie God? And you, you might say, well, if he works in mysterious ways, then it's just, it's even worse, because then we're just an axiom that it went just completely rogue. So there is this God that had the power to generate this universe, generated the universe, and then now is completely out of his control. He wants to help, but he just can't do it. Then let's not call him a God, because he has no godly powers. It's much more simpler to say, okay, there's no God. <clears throat> There's a reality that works. We can have Skype conversations, internet, computers. We can send stuff to unit to space. We can fly. Tomorrow I'm going to be like in Washington D.C. and, and like an hour or some or something like that. That's ridiculous. Uh, people are coming from like other parts of the of the planet, and they're going to be there overnight. The reality works as logic and science kind of like predicts and if you want to ignore that all the evidence that's your decision if believing in a god makes you a better person makes you happier fantastic believe in god all you want give all the money you want to all the institutions you want 
wake up early on some days, do whatever you want. I personally believe there's no God. I believe there's nothing like that. I personally believe if you die, you die and that's it. And that's beautiful. I mean, you have been, you could have been in this planet like any other time, but this is your time, you know? You just like, we're, you, you were awakened at this moment. Make the, do the best you can, you know? Do whatever is good, you think. And then you will die and that's it. There are a few different psychological paths to atheism. These paths are not mutually exclusive. You could have arrived at atheism through some combination. One of the paths to atheism is a very analytical brain. If you're trained to think analytically, uh, you're, you're, you're going to become less and less likely to trust your intuitions. Ara Norenzion, who conducts research at the University of British Columbia on both religious belief and disbelief, explains it like this. The, the most important thing that we we do in higher education is that we teach students to be critical thinkers. And there's evidence that analytical thinking blocks or undermines intuitions. Yeah. And by extension, if religious belief is intuitive, then you're also going to be right. more skeptical of your religious intuitions. Someone who doesn't believe in God or the supernatural may have gotten there because they think critically and do not trust their intuitions. They're rational, methodic, and they look for evidence and counter-evidence. Scientists, and strangely, psychologists specifically, are actually the most atheistic in a population. People who have spent their entire lives in academia uh, tend to be less religious. This path to atheism may not seem all that surprising. However, there is another potential path to atheism that's pretty fascinating. So remember all those traits we talked about in the religion episode? The human psychological traits that may drive us to believe in the supernatural? Well, if a person for some reason does not have one of those traits, or has some dampened down version of one of those traits, it could hinder religious belief, yeah, I mean, this is, or may make it less likely to be the that, default. Uh, this is, idea has been around for a while, and I mean, pretty much every cognitive scientist who thinks about religion has said this, have predicted this. The researchers I, I talked to told uh, me that our mentalizing to to capacity be, may be particularly key. Mentalizing is another name for that capacity to reason about what other people are thinking, feeling, wanting, our human obsession with the minds of others. The term theory of mind is also used to describe this capacity, and it may be key to understanding at least some of the variation in religious belief on an individual level, because there's actually documented variation in this trait. You find that theory of mind abilities vary in the population. Some people are really good at it, some people are not as preoccupied with with right. mentalizing, and we find that that variability in the population correlates with religious beliefs. So, Why so would your ability to mentalize matter in terms of belief in the supernatural? Uh, I mean, to be able to entertain belief in supernatural agents, whether or not they're spirits or ghosts or God or angels or the devil, you, be, you have to be able to mentally represent these agents as minds without bodies, right? right. Yeah. That's, that's what they are. And in order to be able to mentally represent the, uh, their minds and their mental states, you have to have a theory of mind to do it. 
uh, if you want to know what God wants from me, you want to know, what, you know, is, if I do this, would God approve or not approve? This, this is all tier of mind stuff, right? Ara and his colleagues have done studies looking at this, the relation between mentalizing and religious belief, that is. They gave people surveys essentially asking, how much do you mentalize? Like, how much do you think about what other people are thinking? And they also gave those same people questions concerning their tendencies to believe in God or supernatural beings. The less you spend time thinking about other people's minds, uh, the less, also, they're less likely you're a believer. Mentalizing allows us to think about what other humans might be thinking, even when they are not physically around us. I mean, you can think about what your mother might be wanting you to do, even if she's four states over in Nebraska. And so you might imagine that this very trait is crucial to reasoning about invisible beings, supernatural beings. If you don't typically think about what others are thinking or feeling or wanting when they aren't around, then you probably aren't going to be thinking about or praying to a being that you've never seen. And in fact, the idea of doing so may sound a little crazy to you. Now, it gets more interesting, because something we have known is this. Males are less likely to be religious than females. This is not always the case. It's not true in every population. But whenever you find a gender difference, women tend to be more religious than, than men. Ara says that we have known this for quite a while, and there have been various hypotheses as to why. One hypothesis is that it has something to do with gender differences in mentalizing. So it's kind of contentious. But in general, there appears to be evidence that women mentalize more. They may think more about others' feelings or thoughts. And there's some evidence that young girls may develop these kinds of theory of mind skills slightly ahead of their male peers. There's lots of reasons for why this might be the case. I am in no way saying it's biological, but there is evidence that these gender differences do exist. So could the difference in male and female mentalizing capacity also account for the difference in religious belief? In the study I mentioned, we also looked at gender difference. We did find the gender difference. And we found that uh, this gender difference was also explained by the mentalizing uh, process. So women are also, uh, on average, uh, more uh, higher mentalizers. They they just spend more time and they're more uh, skilled at mentalizing than men. And that difference explain the the religious difference as well. So Ara says, yeah, when you crunch the numbers in a study looking at mentalizing and religion, you get a gender difference in religious belief that appears to be mediated by differences in mentalizing. There's one final odd quirk, but it totally fits with this hypothesis. People who have difficulty with mentalizing their mind should have difficulty with religious intuitions. Ara did a study with Will Gervais and Callie Tresnuski, and they found that people who are on the autism spectrum So people who have deficits in their mentalizing ability, well, just as you might suspect, they are more likely to be atheist. Again, suggesting that there's some connection between our ability to think about what other people are wanting and feeling and our belief in a God. Now, I should tell you that there are at least two other main reasons people are atheist. Again, not exclusive of those we have just described. 
But people are non-believers due simply to apathy and lack of cultural pressure to believe. Uh, you are surrounded by people who are also not religious. Right? The, the majority of non-believers are the kinds that you just described. They're just like, they just they were raised in a non-religious environment. That is, you may be atheist simply because no one around you believes. So nothing in your environment has pushed you along in what may be your otherwise natural tendencies. And if anything, you have potentially been instructed on the non-existence of the supernatural. And this leads us to our other big question. Why have entire cultures of atheists emerged? Do these cultures of atheists exist because all of their members have deficits in theory of mind? Probably not. But Ara thinks that just as there are traits in an individual human that make belief easy or appealing, traits and niches and feedback loops that may perpetuate belief in an individual person, there are traits of societies that drive religious belief and growth. And societies may also vary in these traits depending on their other characteristics. It's not like you don't, you're against religion, you just, it's not important to you. A lot of European countries are like that now, yeah. you know, Scandinavia, Northern Europe, Denmark, or France, or you know, Germany. I'm going to put it out straight to you here, and then we'll backpedal and try to understand it. But Ara says, atheistic cultures are going to be those that are stable, relatively homogenous, and have economic equality. These are seemingly necessary, though maybe not sufficient. So there may be countries that have these traits and aren't atheistic, but it would seem that the countries that are largely non-religious, they share at least these qualities. So let's go through this. Why would a stable country be more likely to be non-religious? Ara doesn't think that stability per se makes a country atheistic. But it's hard to ever imagine a culture that is unstable as being non-religious. That is because Ara has argued in much of his writing that one cultural niche for religion is to promote social cooperation. Religion may stick around in a culture because it serves a purpose of helping its members get along. If you want to build cooperative societies, it's a good idea to have supernatural punishment where if you do bad things to other people now, you'll, you know, you'll be punished in the afterlife, right. right? That could be strong deterrent. If you don't know that person who lives 15 miles away from you, what would ever make you feel indebted to that person or like you owe anything to that person? How would you know that that person is trustworthy, that they won't stab you in the back or double-cross you if you strike a deal with them or decide to make a trade with them? Why would you, for example, agree to share food or resources with that person? Well, if there is some kind of moral code, uh, then you're more likely to trust these people. And one and way to get people to act pro-socially is to believe that there is someone watching you, an all-knowing so, God that can see so your private behavior. Yeah. And the, the more the trust you have, the more likely you can build you know, cooperative communities. There is evidence for this. So it turns out that if you make people believe they're being watched, they will display more pro-social behavior. They're nicer, more honest, more generous. In one striking study published in 2006, Melissa Bateson, Daniel Nettle, and Gilbert Roberts found that if you simply remind people of the possibility of being watched by putting a pair of eyes in a prominent location in a room, you get people to act nicer. 
So what they did in their study is that they put a picture of a pair of eyes over a coffee machine in the university coffee room. The established system in the coffee room there was an honor system. You go to the coffee room, you get yourself a coffee, then pay for the drink by putting money into a box placed just beside the machine. No one is there making sure that you're paying, okay? You choose to do it and you choose how much to put in. Bateson and her colleagues did something clever though. On some days, they placed the picture of the set of eyes over the money box. On other days, they placed a picture of flowers. It turns out that on the days in which the pair of eyes were over the box, people paid as much as three times more for their drinks than the days when just a picture of flowers was there. If that's not convincing enough, well, Ara himself has done numerous studies showing a similar effect. If you prime people with religious ideas, you can get normal undergrads acting more altruistically. So he did a study with Azim Sharif, who is now a researcher at the University of Oregon, and they had people come in and play an economics game in the lab. In the game, the participant was told that they and another person, another undergrad, had been randomly assigned to either a giver or receiver role. The giver in the game got 10 bucks from the experimenter, and they were told that they could choose how much, if any money, to give to the other person. But it was actually a trick, because all the participants in the study were actually assigned to the giver role. In these kinds of studies, typically people leave very little or no money to the other person. Azim and Ara wanted to see if they could change how much people would give, depending on whether or not participants were reminded of the idea of a god. So they primed some of these students with words like divine, god, prophet. And then they primed other students with totally non-religious, neutral words. The people who were primed with religious words, they gave more money than the people who were primed with the neutral words. Ara suggests that this is evidence that people are driven to act in less selfish ways when they're reminded or when they believe that some bigger power, like a god, is watching. So once it's obvious or intuitive that there are gods or spirits, what if spirits care about what you do, how you treat other people? And once that intuition gets connected to the moral, then you have a mechanism to basically, you know, make people be more cooperative with each other. But it's not just about religion. Ara and his colleagues have also found that priming people with words like law, government, police, it will have the exact same effect. That is, you don't need religion to get people to act pro-socially. You can use government to do the very same thing. But it's a catch-22, because thinking back to civilizations and societies and how you might get cooperation from a large group of strangers, in order to be able to get people to act cooperatively and pro-socially through belief in government, you have to first get a government. And how do you get a government in place unless you first get people acting pro-socially and cooperating? I think you see where I'm going with this. Ara thinks that religion may have been the way by which people began behaving in these pro-social ways. So you get people cooperating because they believe in an all-knowing God who can watch them all the time. Then, once the people in that society have cooperated enough to have built a stable society, one with a stable and sustainable government, then you can now use the government to induce and perpetuate the same cooperation among the people. You don't need religion anymore. Although Ara is pretty careful to point out that religion is not the only way to get to that point, it's at least one of the ways. And the overwhelming majority of humanity 
lives in large, massive societies, anonymous strangers, right? That's how we live. Mm -hmm. A tiny, tiny fraction of, of the world is our hunter-gatherers, which is our origins. Um, and now we find ourselves in a radically different environment. Uh, now, how did we get there? I think at least partly, my argument is that partly is through these moralizing religions yeah. that uh, push people towards greater and greater social scales and interactions among strangers that seem yeah. to work. But then at some point, uh, societies uh, figured out, at least some societies figured out other ways to maintain cooperation and trust without religion. It's what Ara calls climbing the ladder of religion and then kicking it away. So yeah, so it's basically like we climbed the ladder of religion and kicked it away. So here's one scenario, and it's kind of speculative. But if you get a society that is cooperating because of religion, they grow big and strong, have lots of institutions for education. So it's people are getting good instruction. They're becoming poets and scientists. They are becoming people who think critically and who, because of their accumulating knowledge and technology, they fear the unknown less. They fear famine and drought less. Then they create a stable government with good laws. Well, at some point, the people may, on an individual level, begin to question their intuitions of religious belief and slowly move away from it. And because their society no longer needs religion to maintain its stability, the society also no longer pushes religion. The culture is free to get rid of it. The individuals don't seem to need it, and neither does the society. And that may be what has happened in some of the most advanced countries on Earth. But here's where I begin to doubt the scenario. What about the U.S.? The U.S. is one of the most technologically advanced cultures. I mean, there are others who may be slightly beyond us, but we were the first to send humans to the moon. We've invented the iPhone. So what gives? We are still one of the hotbeds of religion in the world. That's, not, that's another puzzle, right? In the, in the context of the entire world, Americans don't, are not at the top. There are other societies that are much more religious than the United States. Okay. Obviously, like yeah. Middle Eastern countries, yeah. South, South, Latin America. Right. Africa is the most religious continent in the world. But if you compare the United States to other advanced democracies, yeah. if you compare it to Canada or UK or France or Germany, Americans are much more religious. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do that? have a thought. I have been thinking me? about this a lot because yeah. I do get this question. According to Arab, there's another key component to this. It's homogeneity and economic equality. The odd thing about the United States that stands out compared to other democracies, advanced, you know, wealthy democracies, is that the level of inequality is extremely high. Inequality is a very strong predictor of religiosity in the world. And there's a huge gap between poor, you know, rich and poor in the United States. And we know that uh, when you have, you know, existential insecurities, when people are suffering, when people are insecure, they turn to religion. The United States is the only country, advanced democracy in the world, that doesn't have national health insurance. So millions of people are insured, and that's a lot of uncertainty, right? Uh, poverty levels are higher than they should be for a country like the United States. 
um, infant mortality is higher than it should be, uh, job security is, is, is weaker in the United States. All these things predict more religiosity in the world. It's not enough to be big. You gotta have all the members in the culture on board. People in lower income brackets, whose lives are more at the whim of chance, who often cannot pay for good medical care or good housing, they are more likely to believe in a God. So in a culture like ours, where there are huge gaps between the rich and poor, you still have a whole group of people at the bottom who will believe. And hell, they may even be more fervent in their belief than other poverty-stricken people in other countries that are more homogenous in their lack of resources. Because the poor who are living in economic inequality, they not only live in a world where they have less control, but they also see the unfair advantage that has been seemingly bestowed, possibly at random, on other people within their very own culture. So, and these are now my words, not Ara's, but it's possible that people living in poverty in an unequal society, they may be the most fervent in their beliefs because more than any other group of people, they need to find some kind of logic and purpose in why the world is the way that it is. And I thought you should know So where does atheism come from? It is possibly going against our natural tendencies as humans, but an individual with an analytic brain, possibly with decreased mentalizing tendencies set within a culture that has grown stable and no longer needs religion to maintain cooperation, well then you begin to move away from belief in the supernatural. Thank you to Francisco Parada for sharing his story and to Ara Norenzayan for his contribution on the science side of things. The music you heard on this short episode came from Musk Swim and from Follies. Follies was recently featured on NPR's Tiny Desk Contest Tumblr, so you can actually watch the woman behind the Follies music perform on a video if you go to tinydeskcontest.tumblr.com and look for Kate Siefker. That's Siefker, S-I-E-F-K-E-R, from Seymour, Indiana. Oh, and one more thing, a very special thanks to Sarah Allen, obviously. And again, if you enjoyed this short episode, please pass it on. Tell people where they can find more episodes at our website and inexactscience.podbean.com and also on iTunes. <laughs>